0: My name is Bill Dripps. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Fellowship Church, and I'm delighted to be able to share God's Word with you this morning. It's uh, it's quite a privilege. And Caitlin, thank you for sharing. That was uh, that was really encouraging. Uh, I started getting choked up with you on that verse. His grace truly is sufficient. Uh, Let's pray. Father, as we come before you, you are our hope and our joy. You are the one who by your very nature reaches out to us and delivers us. Father, we don't understand why you would want people like us cluttering up your kingdom. And yet you have made it plain that we are not cluttering your kingdom, that we are your kingdom that you would indwell us and make us your habitation. What an incredible privilege. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's see, uh, if you didn't get a Bible or a pen and an outline and you need one of those things, I'm not sure if we have folks to pass that out today. We didn't say anything about it. Oh, yes, we do. have a little folk here to pass out some Bibles. So, make her day and take a Bible. If anybody needs one, wave, wave your hand around in the air and um, we'll see what we can do about getting it to you. The grace principle. Our principles are what drive us. If you ever see us acting contradictorily to our principles, please bring it to our attention. We may fail but we always want to live in accordance with these principles. Um, The reason I mention that so specifically is that not all churches are driven that way. Um, Many churches uh, may be driven by tradition. Now, that may or may not be bad, but the problem is the presupposition. They assume that what was in the past is the best and simply return to that. We presume differently. We assume that what God has revealed in his word is best, and we strive to become more like that. We assume that neither Grace Fellowship nor any other church has ever been all that we should be. And we press on, as Paul says in the book of Philippians chapter 3, we press on toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Grace Fellowship and other churches like us are driven by our principles. We want you to know what they are and join with us in striving to live according to them. I'd like to talk a little bit about what grace is. <clears throat> grace is a, a girl's name sometimes. And uh, grace is what I don't do very well in public. I'm awkward by nature. Um, but when we're talking about grace here, we're talking about something that is an intrinsic part of who God is. In other words, this is not just a little add-on. This is not an aftermarket uh equipment that has been added to God. This is at the very foundation of who he is. The gospel is the good news about the grace of God. And what it's talking about is how God is disposed towards us. He's disposed to show us mercy. He is disposed to show us love. If he can figure out any way to do it, he will do it. Now, this usage of the word grace seems to have originated with Paul. It seems to be a a word in the Greek that Paul pulled out of its everyday meeting, which essentially was graceful, like a ballet dancer is graceful, and applied it to God, and as we look at what he, and how he uses it, we understand that he's using it to describe you know, God's grace, this character and nature of God. Now, the gospel, what's the relationship between grace and the gospel? okay. The gospel is the good news about the grace of God. It's incredibly good news. Why else would we believe that God was predisposed to show us mercy and love? It's the gospel that communicates that. Is that good news? Compared to that, is there any good news out there? That is overwhelmingly the good news. So let me read about our grace principle from Grace Fellowship Principles. Our relationship with God through its beginning, development, and completion is completely by grace through faith alone. By grace, God made us alive with Christ even we were we were dead in transgressions. By grace, the Lord calls us to repent of the sin that still indwells us. By grace, he transforms us into his image over time until we stand perfected before him in heaven. We never grow out of our need for God's grace. It is the way we know God and become more like him. We seek to minister God's grace to the heart in all our relationships. We extend his grace by patiently working to know each other at the heart level, by speaking the truth in love, and by constantly pointing out, pointing each other to Christ. Our goal is that no one misses the grace of God. This is one of our core principles. And um, as I read those words, I'm very conscious of how far we have to go in terms of fully implementing. But that is where we plan to go. So we're going to look at uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to start with this idea that our relationship with God must be based on His grace. It must be based on His grace. Number one, we need to realize that we were lost. And I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. When you look around at things happening in the world today, and you wonder if somehow Paul had a flash of CNN 2,000 years ago. Certainly, this passage has described human history down through all the years. And it is not a happy picture. The history of man on this planet is unfortunately very, very sad. The problem is that we are dead in a spiritual sense. He's not saying we're dead physically. We're alive physically. We're going through the motions of life. But we're not going anywhere worthwhile. We're like condemned prisoners awaiting execution. Um, you know, there's even a big movement in our day for people to uh uh commit suicide when they when they get older. It's a tragic way of thinking, and yet many people think that way. And then there are other people that don't want to wait for you to make that decision and they want to help you out with it, yeah. Save a lot on medical bills, right? We're not doing anything good anyway. Fortunately, uh, we haven't quite gotten there yet as a society. But the reality is, is that we are there spiritually. We are already dead. And then he talks about how we were following the prince of the power of the air. Now, who is the prince of the power of the air? well that from the greek world view the gods were in the heavens and by that they meant the planets and the stars and that kind of thing and in fact where did we get the names for all the planets they are actually the names of roman gods right <clears throat> and uh so that's where the the gods that's what the greeks saw as the as the heavens where were the gods lived now men live above ground in the air. Yeah, we live in the air, right? Is that is that a nice thing? You ever tried living not in the air? Doesn't work real well. We live in the air. So when the Greeks talked about in the air, they meant us, where we live, in the ground above the air. They mean in the air where the birds fly, too, but I guess people do that now, too, as well. Men die and are put underground. That's the underworld. Okay, so who is the prince of this air in which we live? That's how many times people at this day describe Satan. Our adversary is the prince of the power of the air, and uh, and his work in the world around us is is very plain. Is very plain. Uh, there is evil in our in our planet everything around us is not necessarily evil but there is plenty to go around and then finally he says we we live in the passions of the flesh the desires of mind and body now this is not the greek concept the greek concept was dualism the body's bad the spirit's good that's what they thought And you know what? That same concept lives in many people these days. We talk about the the purity of thought and that kind of thing. Actually, it's our thinking that's screwed up. And what Paul is explaining here is a biblical point of view where these passions of the flesh, and it doesn't matter whether it's our body or our mind or whatever it is, is not leading us to God. We are children of wrath, as he says in this passage. In other words, we are born to die. And I'll tell you what, that is probably not the best news that you got today. But yet it is very, very true. We lead lives of futility. The problem with modern media, books, movies, music, art, etc., is that they try to give a true picture of life. And, and Bonnie and I have watched this, this uh, show on, uh, on Netflix. And we've, one of the things that we just enjoyed the most about this show was the theme of redemption in the show. There's this guy who has the, is the crook and he, he's getting himself turned around and he doesn't always do it right, but he's, boy, he's really trying. And it's just so much fun to 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 watch that show. <clears throat> well, the the show, as all good shows do, eventually came to an end. Why do they have to do that anyway? Just when you really found one you like, now they decide they got to end it. So the show came to an end, and they showed this guy who was getting redeemed going back to his old wife. And so I read an interview with the this show's writer. Why did they do that? That spoiled the whole thing. Why did they do that? And he said, well, people just wouldn't really believe because real redemption like that never happens. The audience just wouldn't uh, believe it. And I thought, well, I would have. The problem with modern media... Is, is not in the morality they show. I mean, that's not good, but that's not the real problem. The problem is their total lack of faith, their confidence that anything good is going to happen. They see the world heading in for a clash, crash landing, and they're basically trying to make money out of people's fear and stuff. And it's, it can be sad. So this really does describe the world we live in. And it describes the problem that we face, that we were lost. And then in verses 4 through 7, in your next point there, it talks about we were saved by grace. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So here we have the solution. We have the solution to this life of futility and death. God gave us life, real life, life that's going somewhere, not just existence. He described it as rich in mercy because of the great love that he has for us. We are alive with Christ in spite of in spite of the way we have lived. I just read this passage and to tell you the truth, I, I get I get goosebumps. Um, I, I can believe that, that God would not take pleasure in uh, in sending us to hell. I, I, I understand that totally. I don't take any pleasure in the idea that I might go there. I am delighted that God is, has a plan for getting us into heaven. But it's just really hard for me to believe Just how much he loves us. He's not only made us alive in Christ. He has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Okay, what are the heavenly places? Got any idea what that is? That's like God's throne room. Who sits in the throne room? Right? Ever seen a picture of the throne room? Who's sitting in the throne The king or the queen, right? Who else is sitting in the king or queen's presence? Nobody. Well, maybe if there's the king, there's the queen sits. Maybe if they have children, maybe the children are allowed to sit around them. You and I, brothers and sisters, are going to be seated in the throne room if we have faith in Christ. This this is just crazy good. This is overwhelming the top that he would take those of us who are utterly lost, dead in trespasses and sin and would raise us up to be seated with him and his son and and then in verse 7 he says that that's not even the immeasurable riches of his grace, that's just so that he can show us the immeasurable riches and quite frankly at that point I think Paul has run out of words to describe how good it is i had to so we have the problem we were lost we had the solution we're saved by grace and now we look at why god acted by grace through faith so that we might act in verses 8 through 10 for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is the gift of god not a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. So the result of God's intervention because of his grace is that God's good work produces in us good works. <clears throat> and I think we all have an idea as to how hard that is. Have you ever tried to change a bad habit? Yeah, is that a tough job? How about let's do another one tomorrow? Hey, how about we knock off one bad habit every day this week? Yeah, not likely. God is in the business of changing us. The reason he has acted through by grace through faith is so that we might act. Our salvation is God's gift to us. You see, it says it right there. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So He gave it to us, we don't earn it. How do you respond when someone gives you the perfect gift? You ever, you ever had that happen? You didn't know what you were gonna get, you were hoping for this or for that, and in your wildest dreams you thought, well, yeah, but I, I I'll never get that, but maybe I could get this. And then all of a sudden, somebody gives you that incredible thing that was just better than you can ever imagine. You know, um, that happened to me one time. And uh, it, it happened actually uh, well, quite a number of years ago. And uh, I remember uh, when I asked Bonnie if she would marry me. I still get choked up about that. I, I, I really don't understand why she would do that. And you know what? I don't sit around thinking of nasty things I can do to Bonnie. I, I, When I think of Bonnie, I think, what can I do to somehow do something to repair <clears> her? <throat> And the truth of the matter is, is that God has given us a greater, better, more perfect gift than that. And how could it not result in us wanting to please Him? In us wanting to honor Him? Now, I have the same problem that you, that you do. I am twisted deep down inside, and even when God gives me all these good things, sometimes I just want to go out and do the wrong thing. But as we focus on the Lord and on His gift for us, gratitude is a normal and natural result. We are made for good works. As we walk in those good works, we lead lives of meaning and purpose. And this is where a life of meaning and purpose can come from. It's incredible. The philosophers of our age constantly worry about um, where real meaning can come from in life, and this is where it comes from. It comes from what God has done to deliver us from our sin, so that we could give ourselves to, to good works. So the progression above is: we had a problem; we were lost. We have a solution. We are saved by grace. And we have a result is that we give ourselves to doing the right thing. Now, one thing I want to caution you on, and the Bible is very clear about this, that doing the right thing is not necessarily easy. We've been through almost a year studying the book of Job. (laughs) And what God was doing in that book was changing this man Job and helping him become what he needed to be. Now, those of you that have looked at the book of Job, how many of you think that Job had a tough time? (laughs) Yeah, how many would like to go through what Job went through? No. And the reason that God did that is given right here. He was transforming Job into a man who did the right thing. So if you want to know what it can look like, That is what it looked like for one man. Not an easy job, but a very good job, and well, well worth it. So, our relationship with God must be based on his grace. In the next paragraph in Ephesians, Paul goes on to talk about our relationship with one another must also be based on his grace. And that's it. Let me read verses 11 and 12. Talks about how we were alienated. Therefore, remember at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. So the first thing he wants us to do is to remember what the problem really is. In fact, there's one word, there's a word in this uh, little section here, these two verses, that's repeated in both uh, verses, and it's remember. You know, (laughs) it's it's interesting how uh, people that... um, that come to this country, and uh, and choose to live here, often are more appreciative of what's going on in this country than the people that were born here, because we take it for granted, right? But uh, a few years back, uh, I was talking to a, a fellow and uh, discovering that uh, that he was. Uh, um, uh, uh, on the faculty of this uh, university that I was at, it was actually over at Bucknell, and um, uh, and that he had uh, he had actually grown up in uh, in another country, and had come over here, and um, he his his heritage, his family home, shall we say, the home where his family came from, was in the Balkans, but they had actually been refugees. In Germany, and um, uh, and this fellow that I was talking to uh, was uh, actually had legal residency in Germany, and uh, and and when you look at him, you, you didn't he didn't look odd or anything, and he told me he said Bill, he said you don't realize what you have over here. He said, if if I live here for just a a couple more years, I can get naturalized. And he said, and I will be a citizen. And I will be fully accepted. He said, I lived my whole life in Germany. I am legally German. He said, I will never be accepted as German, ever. I thought, oh my goodness. I had no idea. And that's, and that's just a country. I mean, we know this country is not perfect. Anybody here know this country is not perfect? God. Sheesh. And God has done something greater than that. The problem, we are separated from Christ and alienated from His people. No hope without God trapped in this world. No way out. Our problem with God has led directly to our problems with people. And people have tried to solve this. Um, there's a statement that sums up the communist-slash-socialist ideal, from each according to his ability, to each according to his need. Well, that sounds great, doesn't it? Why don't we just have a society? Everyone contributes what they can and only takes what they need. How well has that worked when people have tried it? Is the problem with the concept? No. (laughs) It's the problem is that we're lazy and selfish. That's what the problem is. And before we get too proud of our Americanism, what's the American ideal? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yes, how often do we have a problem accomplishing that? It's going to be a long, long time before we accomplish our ideals in the U.S. So this is the problem. We are na- alienated one from each other. We don't act in love towards one another. Then in, uh, uh, in verses 13 through 19, uh, Paul says, uh, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down his, in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in his ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross therefore killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. By grace we are now at peace and are fellow citizens. You know, looking at, and that is the solution. Christ's payment for our sin and our reconciliation with God make us one people. We really don't have a choice about that, do we? What are you going to do? Look God right in the eye as he's dying for your sin and taking you to heaven and say, yeah, I don't want that. I don't think so. (laughs) And what he has said is okay. Okay. Not only have I taken you to be my sons and daughters, I have other sons and daughters. You will be one. Which part of that don't you understand? So the solution is God made us one people. We are one. If we are one people, one family, one body, how else can we act except in love? I mean, granted, I can certainly understand why you would not very much enjoy acting towards love towards me. I'm not all that nice a guy. But our problem when we start thinking about that is that really none of us are all that nice. And yet God has included us. And if he would include us, what right do we have to reject it? So the problem, the solution, And now we are God's temple, verses 20 through 22. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, and him you also being built together into a dwelling place for God the Spirit. The result is that we are now God's dwelling place. The foundation... Is the apostles and the prophets. The New Testament and the Old Testament. The, uh, the Old Testament was often referred to as the law and the prophets and the writings. So when he says the prophets, that's probably what he means. The apostles, all the books in the New Testament were written under apostolic authority. So this is, this is a foundation for us. And then he says Jesus is the cornerstone. Now, why is that important? Well, they often built with stone. It's very important that the cornerstone be big and heavy so that it doesn't move. Because all the weight of the building rests on that cornerstone. You have the two walls. As the weight comes down the wall, and especially at a big wall, if it's very heavy. It tends to push out. If those corners start moving, let me tell you what, get out of the house. It isn't going to be pretty. And this kind of, and so the cornerstone must be big and it must be perfect. <clears throat> There's a, uh, a pyramid at a, at a place in Egypt called Maidan. And this pyramid has always been called the collapsed pyramid. Because when you look at it, it looks, it looks a little odd. It's like a, a core kind of sticking up in the middle of all this rubble. And as they've dug down through that and tried to figure out what happened, what happened is all the outer shell of the pyramid collapsed. And they they have taken aerial pictures and seen where stones were rocketed out about a mile into the desert. Okay, when that thing collapsed, it was not pretty at all. If you were anywhere close, you had no memory of it after just a few minutes, because you were dead. This scared the living daylights out of Egyptian architects. And what happened was those stones that made up the cornerstones, the foundation stones, couldn't take the weight. And nobody knows for sure whether they weren't built quite right or whether the foundation wasn't quite right or, or what it was. But things do collapse without an adequate foundation or without an adequate cornerstone. The Lord has given us a thoroughly solid cornerstone. So just like our relationship with God, there was a problem. God's grace is the solution. The result is good works. Now we have a problem. We are alienated from one another. The solution is Christ's payment for our sins. The result is we are now the dwelling place of God. Our application must be driven by grace. What we do in all of this needs to be driven by grace. And the, the first one is you let your guilt be transformed to gratitude. I'm going to skip that. I'm going to make that an assignment for your small groups. That you would share a story in your small group of God's grace and how he has shown it to you. But I want to talk a little about about this other one this other application of letting your rivalry become edification. Let your rivalry, instead of being a tearing down, turn into a building up. And some of you may know that uh, that we pursued uh, trying to buy this building at one point. And uh, I talked to Dan Nold about it. He's the pastor of Calvary, which owns this building. And uh, Dan really wanted to make that happen. He really did. And um <clears throat> it's, it's just really overwhelming when you think about it. He wasn't particularly concerned about the money. We talked about some money at, at one point, but some other folks that know Dan really well said, you know, go, he can't, gonna give it to you. What? This is a million and a half bucks. Turned out he was unable to. Uh, Calvary did some fundraising for their building. They came up $3 million short. The bank required him to get a million and a half out of this building. <clears throat> and so uh, Dan is uh, left doing something that uh, that he never really wanted to do. And um, I know some things, and, and I can't share them all because it's not my story to tell. But I know that as Dan has been going through that, he personally has run into some very, very difficult issues that he's is wrestling with in, in his church. Um, and at this point, uh, well, at this point, they, they have just got some real struggles to deal with, and um, and, I, and I can't really say anything more about that when we needed to find a place and we couldn't buy this thing, I came to Dan and I asked, well, would you let us meet here? And he said, sure. Um, and while they were meeting here as well, while Calvary continued to meet here, they didn't charge us a penny. And then once Calvary moved out, uh, Dan had told me, well, we're, we're going to have to um, charge you guys something. And... uh to, to cover the utilities and that sort of thing. And I told him, great, makes perfect sense. All right, I know you've got to do that. And whatever it is, we'll, we'll be happy to take care of that." So I got an email uh, from their executive pastor, Dan Dorsey. And he said, uh, in the email, he said, Bill, we've, we've calculated the utilities for the, this, the summer months. And it works out to be about a thousand dollars a month. And I thought, heck, that's a great deal. <laughs> that's no problem at all. He said, but it would be unfair to make you pay all of that. So could you could you handle three hundred dollars a month? You know what the going rate in town is at schools, fifteen hundred a month. If you want to wrap that. Now, why why would a church that has problems of its own bend over so backward to help us? In the world, we would be rivals, wouldn't we? And I'll tell you what, it's not because Calvary doesn't need the money. They need it. It's It's what it says in this chapter. What God has done for us motivates us. And we see it in what Dan and Calvary have done for us. It motivates us to do good for other people. And one of the things that talked about in this passage, uh, particularly in, um, uh, I circled the words here, in 11 through 22 was remember. And it's really important that we remember what God has done for us. It's the means by which we relate to God. It's the means by which uh, we relate to each other. God's grace. And we need to remember what that cost him to do that for us. And so today we're going to have communion. Uh, we're going to uh, remember that. And... uh uh As we do that, we want to remember that Jesus took the sin of the whole world on himself. And at the end of Job, we talked about how uh, Job's suffering was horrendous. And yet, the fact is that the suffering that we experience in this life is something that actually we deserve. It was so much more... Difficult for Jesus, because he had no sin, and the suffering that he undertook was to pay the penalty for all of our sin. Have you ever been Have you ever been uh, uh, called to pay the penalty for someone else's sin? Have you ever been uh, Accused of something that you didn't do and penalized for that thing that you never did? How did you feel about that? Did you feel royally honked about that? That was just not... I mean, that was really hard. And that's what Jesus did. He did it. He did it before we even have a chance to ask him what he pleased to. He did it before we were even born. So today, as we take communion, um, let's remember what Jesus did. Father, we come before you, and we know that it's you and you alone who have won our salvation for us. And Father, you call us to put faith in your Son. Work in us to help us have that faith. Father, work in us to conform us to your image and to make us into people who do good works. Father, we pray that you would be the one getting the glory. You're the one who has entered into our world. You're the one who has defeated the prince of the power of the air. And we are so grateful. Thank you for sending your son. We pray in his name. Amen. On Grace Fellowship we move down the rows this way and come up around front here and pick